0: Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson and you're listening to 83 Weeks with
1: Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Oh, I'm great. This is an exciting week. Getting ready for SmackDown on Fox this Friday night, so uh, working pretty hard at that. It's going to be an exciting show. Looking forward to getting to Los Angeles and kicking it off in a really big way. Yeah,
0: the uh, wrestling world is fired up this week, and uh, we're going to get things kicked off this week with a a pretty fiery topic. We're going to talk about you joining TNA which feels like another lifetime at this point. And Eric was switching teams, man. Once upon a time, he was a, AWA guy and traded that Jersey in for a WCW one. And then he traded that one in for a WWE one. And now he's going to trade it in for a TNA Jersey, which seems like, uh, another lifetime, man, what a weird set of circumstances to think about Eric Bischoff and Hulk Hogan and TNA, I guess we'll just start at the beginning. When did you first have TNA on your radar? Did you watch any of the old weekly Wednesday pay-per-views back when they first started that format? I did not. Um, I
1: I was approached by uh, Jeff and Jerry Jurrett before they actually started that series. And they asked me if I'd be interested in coming on board. And I, you know, I knew some of the people involved. Jay Hassman, who uh, was previously headed up the WCW pay-per-view division, was working with Jeff and Jerry. And I didn't have a lot of confidence in Jay uh, based on my experience working with him. And then when when Jerry explained the business model to me, um, I just... You know, I was polite about it, and I thanked him for reaching out to me, but I, I had no interest in it. That was the first time I'd ever heard of it, and subsequently I may have dropped in on a portion of an episode or two just out of curiosity, but for the most part, uh, it really wasn't on my radar, even you know, after they made their way to, uh, to Spike.
0: Did you get in into um, any sort of in-depth conversation at all with the Jarretts about what that may look like of you coming on board? I mean, was... Did you ever get to the point of, of, hey, what might my duties be and what might my compensation be? Or did things not even progress that far?
1: No, they really didn't even progress that far. Before I even wanted to talk about any of that, I wanted to have an understanding of what their business model was. Um, I had once again had pretty much decided that wrestling was in my rearview mirror after I'd been uh, a talent for WWE for quite some time. Had a great experience with that. And that was really how I wanted at that point to end my career. Uh, as I've probably said before on this show, you know, when when the WWE call came, it, it came at a point where, you know, the kind of anger, or resentment or bitterness, whatever you want to call it, uh, with regard to WCW and the fact that this the bottom fell out of our attempt to, <clears throat> to acquire WCW from Turner Broadcasting, once that... You know, that that situation uh, came to an end, and I had moved on with my life. I really wasn't interested in getting back into the, the wrestling business in any kind of a formal way. Uh, but the call did come in, and out of, you know, courtesy, uh, I, I took it from Jerry. Uh, Je- I think Jeff was on the call. And when I asked him about the business model at that point, you know, Ten minutes into that conversation, I had pretty much made up my mind it wasn't anything I was interested in. It just didn't make any sense to me the way they explained it, you know, a, a weekly pay-per-view model. So I, I politely uh, thanked them for their interest and, and proceeded to forget about it. But, it, no, we never got into what my role would have been or, or any of that. Never got that far.
0: So as a, a bit of a refresher, TNA becomes a thing. And they have their debut show in June of 2002. And just one month later, you debut as the raw general manager. Uh, so July of 2002, do you think that impact sort of rearing their head or TNA at the time popping up and becoming a thing and your relationship with some of those talent was perhaps one of the motivations for Vince McMahon and company wanting to take you off, off of the playing field?
1: Not at all. Not at all. I think, you know, the way I heard it, my name had come up in a, you know, in a creative meeting at WWE and there was some enthusiasm about it. The the brand split, I think, was on the horizon, at least. And it just it, it kind of made sense storyline wise at that time. I, I, you know, I can't speak for anybody in, in WWE at that time, certainly. And I wasn't a part of any of those conversations, obviously. But I I don't think there was any concern at all on wwe's part about tna becoming any kind of a legitimate threat
0: so you're fired on wwf or wwe tv you know vince mcmahon uh makes the ruling that the eric bischoff character is fired and they throw you in a dumpster and you're out of here and that happens in late 05 and you would make some sporadic appearances um you know throughout 06 and 07 just every now and again um but there's your name was always sort of loosely associated with wrestling, you know, there, where there's rumor and innuendo that you might be wanting to do something. Once you sort of wrap things up uh, in December of 05 with WWE through 06, 07, 08, what was your daily life like? What were you What were you floating around doing during that time if you're not actively working in wrestling?
1: Well, I was actively Uh, creating, producing, uh, selling a lot of television series. You know, we probably had it by 08. I probably had about seven or eight different, uh, television series that we had created and produced and, and sold to various uh, cable outlets. So I was I was very busy uh, during that period of time. And again, you know, I just had no real intentions of getting back formally into the wrestling business. I dabbled in a couple of things, an Australian tour and a couple other, you know, kind of one-offs that came my way, but there was never, n- never really uh, had any thoughts about getting involved full-time and any kind of a wrestling opportunity at that point
0: before we talk about australia because i do want to get there because i do have some notes about that and some questions tell everybody some of those shows that you created because we get lots of questions on social media about hey which which of these shows were eric bischoff shows i think everybody knows the scott Bayo show but there were a lot of others that maybe folks don't just automatically associate with you
1: yeah, I mean, there was, there were two seasons of Scott Bayo. Scott Bayo is 45 and single and then there was another one for Scott Bayo was 44 and single and 45 and married. and then we went on after that. subsequent to that, uh, we did 61 episodes of a sitcom with Scott Bayo called See Dad Run. Uh, which was on network. So that was a very successful um, television series for us. And our first scripted series, when I say us, I mean BHE or Bischoff-Hervey Entertainment, which was my production entity at that time. And we were based in Los Angeles. And let's see, what else did we say? I started started off with uh, I Want to Be a Hilton, which we sold with Endemol to NBC. Uh, We did, most notably, I think our audience would most likely to remember uh, Hulk Hogan's Celebrity Championship Wrestling. We did that for CMT. We did a couple different series for VH1. Um, Let's see, what else did we do? You did like a
0: motorcycle show?
1: The motorcycle show came later on. That was for uh, Discovery. Uh, We did that show. Uh, We did, jeez. Like like a pawn store (laughs) show, right? We did a podbroker show in, out of Chicago. I think there was a point where we probably had three or four different shows going simultaneously with different networks. So we were, you know, that was at a time, you know, uh, back in the glory days of unscripted television where um, the networks were really buying. J- Just about anything they could get their hands on that was either celebrity driven or kind of a, what they refer to as transactional shows. The Pawn Star Show is a typical example of, you know, kind of a fly on the wall, life inside of different types of businesses. You know, most notably, the one that kind of kicked it off was West Coast Choppers with Jesse James. A good friend of mine, Tom Beers, produced that and uh, kind of created the phenomenon of transactional reality shows or transactional non-scripted shows. And we followed suit, like I said with a couple of our own and and uh and did quite well. You know, we were I probably made more money during that period of time than I've ever made in my life. Uh and and I did it outside of the wrestling business. So it was a very successful time. Of course, the industry has subsequently changed quite a bit. Reality shows now or non-scripted shows are much different today than they were. Um probably for the better. Um, uh, there's still some, some, you know, kind of corny ones out there that still exist, but they've been around for a long time. But the, the nature of non-scripted has gotten, uh, it's a much more, it's more of a documentary or what they call in the industry, a doc follow. Um, they're more sophisticated unscripted shows for the most part, but back in the day, yeah, we were rocking and rolling.
0: During this, uh, down period after you're, you know, dismissed from your raw character, you still write your book with wwe and i think that comes out on october of 2006 we've never really spent much time talking about the the book process uh, talk to me a little bit about how that deal came together and and what it looks like to put it together i think most of our listeners know that Mick Foley cared to write a notebook and just hand wrote it somehow i suspect your process was a little different
1: yeah well the 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 process started while I was still very active in WWE. And I think at the time, WWE had a publishing deal with Simon & Schuster. And that's where the the publisher that really uh, distributed a lot of the WWE books during that period of time. It was a very successful relationship. But WWE approached me while I was still active. I guess it would have been about 2004 uh, while I was still very active as a general manager on camera. And that's when the process started, and it took a while—probably a year or so. Um, oh, I say, about a year and a half. We talked about it, and then uh, through Simon and Schuster, uh, another writer came on board and kind of took over the actual writing process. And what he really did was—he um, did all the research. You know, as you know, having done this podcast with me for so long. Uh, you know, you, the timelines, you know, it's hard to keep track of timelines and facts. And, you know, and I don't have notes and I didn't keep files and I didn't, you know, keep track or a, or a diary, if you will, or any kind of a journal as to what, you know, my average day was like or even what, you know, some of the bigger moments in my career was like. So um, the writer that I worked with at Simon & Schuster kind of took that all upon himself and did all of the research. And then it was just a matter of phone interviews, uh, quite a few of them over the course of about six months, I'd say maybe a year. uh, We would get on the phone maybe twice a week for a couple hours at a time and just kind of walk through specific uh, timelines or incidents or big moments in my career after the research had been done. So it it was a pretty cool period of time.
0: Uh, so let's talk about the, the European tour or the, the Australian tour rather, because I think this was on a lot of wrestling fans radar, but everybody just was sort of shocked that this was actually going to be a thing. Uh, Meltzer would actually write Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff, who have been talking about starting a promotion and doing overseas touring for seven years, have finally announced the start of Hulkamania promotion with four shows for Australia in November. As part of a ton of news this past week involving Hulk Hogan. So the idea, this is coming from the observer dated September 21st, 2009. The idea, I guess, is let's run a series of shows in Australia on November 21st, 24th, 26th, and 28th. And we've got quite the lineup of talent for this. Nick Dinsmore, the pimp father, which uh, is the godfather. Um, rock of love, which is Billy blade and Cade Anthony, Brutus beefcake and Heidenreich Spartan 3000, which is M dog 20 or Matt cross or son of havoc. Uh, and Shannon Moore, the nasty boys are here. Vampire warrior, which of course is the former gang black Pearl, which is a member of the Samoan dynasty. Mr. Anderson, the former, uh, Ken Kennedy. And then, uh, Sean Morley, of course, former Val Venus, Brian Christopher's here, Kishi, the former rookie, Orlando Jordan, Osa too, Of course we know him as Umaga, but the big draw is the main event, Hulk Hogan on one side, Ric Flair on the other, and this isn't happening in 1994. This is happening in 2009, uh, throughout Australia. When does this idea first become, uh, more than just, Hey, what if, You know, I got a phone
1: call from uh, a couple of promoters over in Australia, and they were interested in bringing Hulk Hogan over. This was a group of guys. I can't remember their last names at this point, I'm sure it's in your research somewhere. Uh, nice guys. They were typically rock and roll promoters and very, you know, successful ones at that. They pr- promoted a lot of big rock tours, uh, throughout Australia. And they called me and said, Hey, we'd, we'd like to bring Hulk Hogan over to Australia. And there was also a connection with, uh, Rikishi's group. Rikishi had a wrestling school, uh, in Los Angeles. Actually, my son Garrett, uh, trained there for about a year, year and a half in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, and they they also reached out to me, and it was kind of a joint effort. I took a couple meetings uh, with Rikishi's group uh, over at William Morris because I think they were represented um, by William Morris at the time, and I knew a lot of people over there. And we just started exploring it, and I talked to Hulk about it, and he liked the idea of it. There was a pretty significant guarantee involved for the four shows. And in talking to Hulk, we just put together a card that was, you know, I would say the majority of it were guys that uh, Hulk Hogan felt comfortable with, you know, having on the tour. But also Rikishi's group put together, you know, quite a few of the gang. for example, came, you know, through Rikishi's group and and quite a few of the others. So it was I don't want to say a joint promotion because a lot of it was really on Hulk and I and and the, the promoters. But Rikishi's group was also a part of that.
0: The idea that is reported in the observer is that, um, not only do you want to do this tour, but you want to film a reality show with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair, which is almost described as like, uh, the odd couple, the old classic television series. Was that ever discussed to the best of your recollection?
1: There was some really, really early. And, and I mean, it was, it was almost like, you know, Bartok. talk. Hey, what if, you know, that'd be kind of cool. If, and again, at that time, going back to 2006, as I stated a few moments ago, you know, celebrity driven kind of reality shows were, I mean, they were pretty easy to sell, especially when you had big names, you know, clearly Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair being two big names. Um, So, you know, there was some interest in it, but not enough to really warrant pursuing it much more than uh, you know, a couple early, early conversations, but we never pitched it to a network. We never developed it, meaning we never, you know, laid it out laid it out on paper and actually tried to sell it. Uh it was just really more than anything, talked. There was no formal conversations with anybody about it.
0: It does feel weird to me. I know that Flair would have been interested during doing a reality show, but given you know, where Hulk Hogan's last reality show wound up, that was a curious idea to me. I think the last episode of Hogan Knows Best airs in like October of oh seven and I think like a month later, uh, they were filing for divorce. So to see just a couple of years removed from that that he may be wanting to throw his hat back in the reality ring caught me off guard a little bit. Do you think Hogan would have actually went through with that? Or was he like, Man, I'm done with reality T V yeah.
1: Oh, I think, you know, I, I think he was up for it. Um, uh, it. It wasn't like he'd made up his mind that he never wanted to do real, reality television again. Obviously, he did the the celebrity championship wrestling, which is not the same thing as having a camera in your house following you around. But uh, it wasn't that he was completely down on reality. Uh, I think he was... Down on, you know, the invasion of his privacy and having a crew in his house, you know, 18 or 20 hours a day, that would have been a tough sell. But I think if the idea would have been right and it would have made sense for Hulk, uh, yeah, he would have been interested. But the other issue is that this was also a period of time, you know, with the divorce and the stress that came along with that, um, Hulk was physically as well as mentally and emotionally as a result of the divorce, but physically, he was in a ton of pain. You know, that was about the time his journey, you know, into seventeen back surgeries and hip replacements and knee replacements and all of the all the complications that came along with that, and all of the other issues that came along with that, with regards to painkillers and alcohol and self medication and all of that was a big issue for for Hulk at that time. And I just don't think physically, he would have been able to to hold up to any kind of a regular reality show schedule. And that's one thing that people don't realize, you know, you watch a half hour reality show or a one hour reality show and, you know, like anything else, you know, it looks easy, but it's really, really demanding. And even though it's unscripted, um, the, the way reality was shot back then, and probably even more so today, um, you're, you're putting in 16, 18 hour days, five and six days a week and you have to be really committed to that project. It's not like you can do it in your spare time. It's not a part-time gig. It consumes your life, uh, for, you know, six or eight weeks at a time while you're shooting. If you're shooting eight episodes, typically that'll take you about six, six weeks of, um, production, you know, in the field location, if you will. And then another probably three or four months of post-production. Uh, and even during the post-production period of time if you're a if you're a star of a reality show you're still really busy uh reshooting certain things or adding certain elements or doing voiceovers or confessionals or promos if you will um so it's it's a big big thing and i just don't think hulk was physically or mentally up for that kind of a challenge at that point
0: what was your role in this australian tour i mean you said that, you know, there's like a financial backer in this and they're approaching you. But what's your official title or your official position within this outfit?
1: Well, the, the contracts were all, you know, under my name, uh, Eric Bischoff Entertainment Group. At the point, I negotiated the deal. I had my attorneys negotiate it. Um, I was really... Um, I mean, the local promoters, the Australian group that were the local promoters handled all the negotiations with the buildings and, and all of the promotion that occurred locally on the ground. But in terms of putting all of the deals together, um, that was my role. I didn't have an official title. I didn't need one. I wasn't working for a company at the time. I was working for myself. So I guess I was a managing director of my own LLC if, if we needed to put a title on it. But I, I basically um, managed all of the contracts and all of the arrangements and, you know, all of the details in getting our group of talent over to El Cerrito to, to perform in the tour.
0: How do you go about picking your players here? Is there a strategy beyond just who's not under contract with WWE?
1: Well, you have to start with, you know, who's who's not under contract with WWE or anybody else at that time that, you know, we felt would be a uh, a draw that would have some, some you know, name value and some equity in the marketplace. I had never worked really with uh, Ken Anderson before. So this was, that was a first for me. I think uh, Lacey Von Erich was also on that tour. I had never worked with Lacey. Um, Obviously the, the, (laughs) the cast of characters that one might expect uh, to come along with Hulk Hogan, the nasty boys, Brutus, the barber, beefcake, Jimmy Hart, of course was there. Uh, Those were obvious selections, but we really did just take a look at, okay, who's available. Who's working the independent scene right now that has some name value? And, you know, you start with that list and kind of weed your way through it. You know, it started with with Ric Flair. You know, when we really when we first started getting serious in our discussions, after my first meeting or two with the Australian group, um, I went to 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 Hulk and said, look, this is real. The money's real. The advance that they're willing to put up to make this happen is very real. Uh, once money was put into escrow, so we knew for sure that we were dealing with a legitimate promoter. Um, we went about talking about, okay, how do we populate this roster? You know, for this card, who do we go after? And you know, as he did with WCW, the first guy on the list was Ric Flair. You know, Hulk knew again because he was in so much pain and he had so many physical limitations at this period of time. I'm I'm surprised he even chose to do it to be honest with you and the money was good But it wasn't like astronomically good uh, In in Hulk Hogan's world. I think any one of us would have jumped at it, but you know for Hulk at the time He didn't really need the money and and even with the divorce looming um, And the amount of money he was willing to walk away from just to make you know Linda disappear from his day-to-day life He still didn't need the money But he missed being in the ring I think that drove him as much as anything Um, But the first thing that, you know, Hulk said is, look, let's see if we can get to Rick. So I, you know, Hulk I think put the first call into Rick and then I put a call in really shortly thereafter. And what was interesting is this, you know, I hadn't talked to Rick since, you know, we worked together in WWE and, you know, we had our little skirmish backstage that I think most people are familiar with and, and aware of. And even after that, Skirmish, You know, Rick and I had a, a good professional relationship, but it wasn't like we were tight at that period of time. There was no necessarily heat between us, but we weren't going out of our way to reach out and say hi to each other, you know, by text or on the phone or anything like that. So Hulk kind of broke the ice there once again, and I, I called Rick, and it, it came together really, really well. Rick was excited to do it at the time. Rick understood you know where hulk was at physically and and felt comfortable and you know being able to to go out there and work with hulk and, and put on a great show so it it all came together pretty quickly and easily with rick
0: at this time rick is 60 and um of course uh, hulk hogan is 56 but rick is also one year removed uh from the big send-off by wwe after losing his retirement match but he's still looking to get back in the ring he had at that point been talking to new japan and you know, couldn't put together a deal, but he winds up signing a three-year contract with this group, with the understanding that this is going to be a real promotion. So when you know, you've got Rick locked in, uh, who's your next go-to as far as, as we look down this list that you're trying to line up because the rumor innuendo was at one time you were trying to sign the, uh, the hot free agent Jeff Hardy, who at the time had just been cut by WWE and had some particular personal challenges. But that wouldn't necessarily keep him from doing this tour. I think Jeff Hardy
1: came up in conversation. You know, Hulk had always liked Jeff, uh, probably still does. Um, and Jeff's name did come up, but it didn't – It we never really entered into any kind of serious conversations or thoughts about it. It was just a name uh, that we had discussed. We didn't – you know, with Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair at the top of the card – and the undercard that we had already, you know, had in place again with the nasty boys and and Ken Anderson and uh, a lot of the Gangrel and a lot of the guys that came out of Rikishi's group, uh, we didn't uh, we didn't really need any more big names. We we felt like we really had enough. Look, it was the Hulkamania tour. It was all about Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. That was the main event, if you will. And the the promoters in Australia. Uh, didn't feel like we had to really stack the deck uh too much deeper than that so there was never really any serious conversations with too many of the really you know white hot names that would have recently come out of wwe
0: Meltzer would report that the local group you're using is called condon sports and entertainment as the local promoters and then ah. KnockX pro entertainment as a partner uh and i guess we should mention that there is a wrestling school in California ran by uh, the former Gangrel and Rikishi. So maybe if this thing was to get off the ground, that could have been sort of proving ground. But somebody who wanted to prove that he wasn't going on this tour that I'm curious to see if you guys ever had any conversation about is Bill Goldberg. Because he would take to social media to write, zero plan to joins Hogan, join Hogan's tour. The old man wants all the money for himself. Plus three reality shows on tap. Uh, I don't know. It seems like a weird tweet from your friend, Bill. Yeah. I mean, it's
1: typical Bill Goldberg. We never reached out to Bill uh, about being a part of this tour. Didn't feel that we needed him. Uh, again, he would have been a very high priced piece of talent. And with the talent that we already had, as I said, a few moments ago, didn't feel like we had to put ourselves at any further financial risk to bring in Bill Goldberg. So I don't know where he got that. You know, there was never a serious conversation with him about money. So he may have just assumed that you know Hulk Hogan would have wanted all the money. That sounds like something Bill would tweet, but uh, there was never, ever a serious conversation with Bill about being a part of this tour.
0: We should mention that um, at this time, uh, Hulk Hogan is, is a known entity in Australia in a major way. So it's not like you're sort of rolling the dice as to will we be able to draw any fans. The most recent time he was promoted and advertised there, And he was the headliner for a 2002 show at a stadium in Melbourne. This is back when he was with WWE, but they sold a sellout 56,732 fans. How about that? 2002 in Melbourne, Hulk Hogan's the top name on the card, 56,732 fans. He winds up not making the show though, because he quits two weeks prior, uh, unhappy with creative allegedly. Uh, so, you know, they still have the rock, they still have triple H, they still have Brock Lesnar, but Hulk Hogan was sort of the marquee guy. And you got to think that the promoters locally, that's not too far in the rear view mirror. They remember, dude, the last time that we promoted or he was promoted here, 56,000. That's a monster number in, in any era.
1: Yeah, and thank you uh, for recalling the name of uh, the Condon uh, Group. It, it was Michael Condon was, and his father, and I don't remember his father's name, but Michael Condon, Michael Condon was uh, about my age, and he was my primary contact uh, in Australia, and the guy that I negotiated the deal with. And I think, you know, in hindsight, you know, there's a great lesson to be learned here. Um, although the, the tour was, I, I would say it was unsuccessful, uh, at the end of the day, uh, for for a number of reasons, uh, primarily among them was the fact that the Condons just they went balls out. You know, they booked us in some of the biggest arenas in Australia, the same arenas that WWE tours in, probably to this day. Uh, Rod Laver Arena being one of them. You know, these are massive, massive arenas with a lot of expense associated with them, and I think the promoters, as you pointed out, were probably looking at this and going, "Hey, wait! You know, last time WWE was here, fifty-six thousand people, whatever it was. Uh, wow, it's only a couple of years later, and we've got Hulk Hogan and Ric Flair. On paper, if you're not in the industry, that kind of makes sense, and you're willing to roll some pretty significant dice." Uh, for that tour, which the condens did. Again, they were a very successful, you know, touring company. It wasn't like they were just a couple of local guys that scraped some money together, money marks as they're referred to in the industry. These were really legitimate successful promoters. They promoted the Rolling Stones and Share and ACDC and any number of other you know, monster acts throughout Australia. Uh, but again, on paper, if if you if you're not in the industry, that makes a lot of sense. But I think the lesson to be learned here um, and probably is true to this day is the WWE, the brand is what was really driving the attendance in 2002 while the names were obviously important clearly I'm not suggesting that they're not but those names aren't nearly as important without the WWE brand as they are with the WWE brand and I think the same same you know we learned that lesson I should say the promoters learned that lesson. But, you know, I think as we found, you know, looking forward and I know we're talking about TNA and we'll get more into this, you know, in this podcast. But that same lesson probably should have and could have been learned by TNA. Just because you bring in big names doesn't mean you're going to get big results. And the the Condon's figured that out in Australia and, and subsequently we've seen a number of other people figure that out, you know, afterwards.
0: You know, we're going to backtrack a little bit here from oh nine to 2008 because Hulk Hogan had flirted with the idea of going to work with TNA before. And it, it sort of came out of left field. Um, there's a press conference in Tokyo and Jeff Jarrett is, is holding court, Hulk Hogan would interrupt it, and Jarrett would smash Hogan with a guitar. Hogan's going to bleed all over the place. It gets lots of attention and it looks like, oh my God, Hulk Hogan's coming to TNA and then it doesn't actually happen. Uh, I know you weren't involved with TNA at the time, but do you remember what the circumstance was there Why we didn't see Hulk go to TNA in 2008? I, you know, I really don't. I wasn't involved in any of
1: those discussions, which was unusual because at that time I was really doing a lot of uh, business with, with Hulk and even helping him with things that had nothing to do with wrestling uh, that, that he was interested in doing, but that was a deal that I, I really wasn't a part of at all. And I don't know if there was any serious conversations beyond, Hey, let's shoot an angle, uh, why we're both in Japan. I, I really don't, I don't want to say that there wasn't, but I, I would be surprised if there was any legitimate, um, when I say legitimate, I mean, serious conversations as in, have your attorney call my attorney. Let's start working out a deal. To me, that's serious. Anything, you know, Anything that would any conversation that would happen leading up to that moment in time is what I consider casual conversation. And I'm guessing that there was some casual conversation and probably some interest expressed. And perhaps, you know, Hulk was thinking, hey, we'll shoot an angle if it gets some interest and leads to a deal. Great. If not, that's cool, too. I would guess not being involved in it. That was probably the thinking at the time.
0: We should also mention that uh, as we're marching towards this hulkamania tour tna is uh well they're in rough shape figure four weekly would report in october of 2009 uh, october 27th tna was a madhouse this week with everyone going nuts and talking about how the place was in a free fall everyone is panicking said one source the crew has lost all faith in the writing crew thinking they're in completely over their heads and anytime someone approaches them with questions about future direction, they're not giving a straight answer. There was a major blow up between AJ Styles and Vince Russo regarding the booking of Styles winning the title. And, uh, it just goes from there. So there is some unrest and some unhappiness in October of 09. We're not quite yet there because you guys are focused on your, uh, Australian tour. Uh, I don't know that there's enough meat on the bone to have a whole show about this Australian tour, but. Briefly tell us what you remember about this tour that went through Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, uh, Sydney. You've got four big shows here, decent crowds, there's television cameras there. It's never released on DVD, though. I'm sure there's a story there. What can you tell us about this tour?
1: Well, it was, I mean, it was a first-class tour. You know, the Condens. you know, one of the things that we negotiated was um, first-class airfare for uh, all of our town talent, meaning the, the the talent that I put together um on my side of the equation. Uh we flew over there on Virgin Airlines out of uh Los Angeles. Like I said, first class. Beautiful, beautiful airline, had a great time on the way over. Kind of a old school, I guess, eighties, early nineties uh wrestling party environment. Everybody had a great time, if you could imagine that. Uh First-class accommodations while we were there. We were in some of the nicest hotels in every city that we were in. Uh, the venues were run uh, perfectly. There, a lot of local promotion. Hulk and I both got there early and showed up at a lot of rugby games. And you know, uh, we did a ton of interviews locally with you know all the major networks at all these different sporting events. So, from a, a tour perspective, it was absolutely first-class all the way. Uh, they did, the Condens did a lot of local promotion. Like I say, they spared no expense in terms of our accommodations and they couldn't have been greater hosts. They went out of their way again to make sure that while we were there, you know, especially Hulk and, 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 myself and a few others, you know, got a chance to experience a lot of the culture and, and, and some of the history and, you know, meet some very important people while we were there. So from a, from a tour perspective, it was first class. You know, the the actual events themselves were run very well. There's no issues at all with any of that. The the real issue was we were in buildings that were just too big for the audience that we could draw. And and that's where, unfortunately, you know, things didn't work out for the promoters. Now, they worked out okay for us because our money was more or less guaranteed. There were some issues with that. Uh, because our money was in escrow. Half of the the money was in escrow. The other half was uh, in an advance. And unfortunately, my attorneys had agreed to use uh, an Australian escrow agent, which was, in hindsight, that was a mistake. We should have never agreed to that, because Australian law and American law is quite different. And when you have to litigate, in Australia, you're litigating under Australian laws. And it just got to the point where, and again, I'm, I'm kind of getting ahead of myself. We probably drew 50% less than the promoters projected we would.
0: It, going it's, back. it's reported as roughly 5,000. Does that sound about right? Uh,
1: per arena? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I'd say that was light. We were probably closer to 8 or 10 keep in mind you're in 18 and 20,000 seat arenas, a couple of them. So I I would say we were uh, at least two thirds, maybe half full, uh, most of the time, but that didn't, you know, maybe covered everybody's expenses, but it certainly didn't put anybody into profit. Not, not to the degree that they had hoped anyway. Uh, obviously not much merchandise, uh, because of the nature of the tour. Um, being a one-off, if you will. So there really wasn't as much money for the promo- local promoters as they had projected. And as a result, there, you know, became issues, you know, getting our money because the the, the promoters also, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to say the guarantee was somewhere around a million and a half, maybe for the four shows. And a lot of that billion or a portion of that million and a half dollars was not only the local promoters, but investment partners of the local promoters. And that's where the issue came. And that is a show unto itself. But those third-party investors that were a part of that tour are the ones that created the litigation with regard to the escrow that was in the bank in, in Australia. They essentially froze that escrow. Uh, because they had issues with the local promoters and as as a result of them freezing the escrow, we didn't get a hundred percent of our guarantee So that's and which is why the DVD never came out because we had rights to that DVD and we wouldn't let those rights go until the escrow was released And it, it just turned into a you know a, a litigation nightmare And we finally got to the point, you know in, in speaking with my attorneys we would have had to hire local Australian attorneys to you know, get the money out of escrow. By the time, I think we had five hundred and fifty or $750,000 in escrow, uh, by the time we would have litigated that money out of escrow, we would have spent more money on attorney's fees than would have been in the escrow account. And there's just a certain point where even though you're right, you, you can't afford to be right, if you know what I mean.
0: Sure. Well, that makes sense. It's a shame that those... Shows never were released because we get questions about those at least once a month about, Hey, when are we going to see those matches? I don't know that they were necessarily classics, but still, uh, folks were interested. I got to tell you though, the one thing that stuck out to me, having promoted a couple of conventions now is when you said, Hey, all of the talent had first class airfare, like to fly first class from LA to anywhere in Australia right now, is probably like 14 grand. And so if you're flying over 20 folks, that's a lot of money yeah it was
1: and that you know now now again i want to be clear not everybody flew first class myself hulk brutus the nasty boys jimmy hart uh there were probably several others we definitely flew first class i don't know that the entire crew that flew over necessarily flew over first
0: class we should talk about this australian tour that we've broken down in great detail that Maybe it's a little disappointing. You guys don't even know it's going to be disappointing before. Somehow you wind up signing with TNA. So to recap that tour happens at the end of November, but by October, late October, you're signed to a deal, which I can't believe is, is real. Meltzer would report that, um, you guys held a press conference at MSG on October 27th, it's also going to feature Dixie Carter and Eric Bischoff. He would say the deal was put together by Hogan, Bischoff, Carter, and Spike TV. And uh, I mistakenly referred to the uh, Hogan guitar shot with Jarrett earlier. It 08. It's 08. It's 03 when that happened. One year removed from his WWE run. That's when Hogan announced he had signed, even though he hadn't, and shot that angle with Jeff Jarrett. And then, of course, we know the next time we would see Hulk Hogan, it's with WWE, not with TNA. So Meltzer can't help but say, I hope he really did sign this time. Uh, but you guys signed this deal um, uh, like roughly a month prior to the Australian tour. Did that sort of, I mean, obviously it it canceled any future Australian plans, but how did this deal come together? And why did you guys sort of get cold feet about the Australian tour becoming a real promotion or was this just a better offer? Well,
1: I, I think there's a bad reporting going on there. The, it, it, the tour was a one-off tour. It was never, ever... Uh, contemplated that it was going to be a legitimate, you know, full-time ongoing promotion. I don't know where that got started or how that got started. Well,
0: perhaps Uh, I jumped to conclusions because Meltzer would say that Flair signed a three-year contract, which to me implies that there's going to be more to it than just this one-off tour, but maybe you're right. Maybe it's not a promotion. Maybe it was just the option to book him for three years. Maybe, maybe I'm just reading into it.
1: Or maybe it's just typical Dave Meltzer reporting and it's incorrect.
0: Okay. So (laughs) (laughs) There's
1: three options. Okay. All right.
0: All right. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about how this deal comes together though, because it does sort of come out of left field. We're seeing in the newsletters, Hey, they're, they're doing this Australian tour that's in late September come late October. Whoops. Now we're with TNA. This feels like it comes out of left field. Um, who contacts who first, how do those initial conversations go at this point? It's probably, is there less Jeff Jarrett, more Dixie Carter, or, or how do you get into the fold here? Uh,
1: I, I wasn't a part of the original conversation. I'm guessing it's just a guess that Jeff Jarrett reached out to Hulk at this particular time, and I'm glad you cleared up the timeline issue there, and it makes sense that Hulk would have done something with Jeff in 2003 that I wouldn't have been knowledgeable of or a part of. But by 2008, again, just to kind of clarify and put all of this into context, because of where Hulk was at with his health and his issues, his personal issues with the divorce, um, I was kind of a filter for a lot of the deals that were, that were, were coming to Hulk at that time. And I'm pretty sure that... Uh, Hulk and or Dixie would have reached out to Hulk and Hulk would have said, you need to talk to Eric because that in that, at that period of time, that's where his head was at. And that's really how I got involved in the discussions. I negotiated Hulk's deal with TNA. Um, It was actually with Spike TV, but Spike paid for it. That's another thing that I really want to take this opportunity to clear up because over the decades, you know, there's been so much written about how Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff came in. You know, they took so much money out of TNA and didn't really contribute. All of that is false. You know, TNA didn't pay for my salary. Uh, or, 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 and it wasn't a salary. I wasn't an employee, but they didn't pay for my expenses. They didn't pay for Hulk Hogan's expenses. They didn't pay for Sting's expenses. There were a lot of big names that came into TNA that Spike paid for. And that's public record, uh, that, that uh, spikes, you know, public relations department has come out and talked about that, um, in the, in the past. So people that are listening to this that are under the assumption because you read dirt sheets that, you know, Dixie Carter and and, and TNA were paying the freight for Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff, absolutely nothing further from the truth. Do your research, you know, read what what, what, what Viacom had to say and, and, and their clarification of that. Um, but my involvement came again because Hulk was at a point Again, because he was, I mean, literally, I'm not going to exaggerate this. There were times when Hulk couldn't even get out of bed. The pain was so bad. He couldn't even roll over to pick up the phone. The pain was so bad. And at that point, I was handling a lot of his stuff. And that's how I got involved in the deal. And it started out with me negotiating Hulk's deal on his behalf. Originally, I was not a part of that deal. Um, That became, that, that kind of evolved subsequent you know, to, to the initial contact and the initial negotiations for, for Hulk.
0: Uh, Meltzer would write, no details were released. Although TNA was scheduled to announce the signing on the October 29th impact show. Everyone was largely mum on details other than it said that something bigger involving this deal is still yet to happen. TNA had been talking with Hogan for months when Hogan announced the start of a new promotion and told its talent that they would not just be doing a tour in Australia at the end of November, but doing many international tour, it was believed that a deal wasn't going to be made. Hogan's people told Michael Condon, who is promoting the late November tour of Australia, that the TNA deal is for the U S only, and that he will not be a part of TNA's February tour in Australia. Uh, man, that's, uh, that's gotta be a weird call to get if you're Michael Condon, something else. That
1: that, meant- no, no, but again, there's so much bad information in, in all of that um there again i'm going to go back there was never it, it wasn't like hogan's prom- hogan didn't have a promotion there was no promotion that hogan you know got his wrestlers together and said you know we're going to tour internationally well, that's just patently that's patently false but it's not true
0: hang on though let's just let's just go down the rabbit hole for a minute because I, I agree with what you're saying and i understand it but i also know that if something's successful like let's say for instance. This Australian tour does gangbuster business and these giant buildings are fucking jam-packed hanging from the rafters. Are we to assume that there would never be a subsequent tour? Of course there would. If it's hugely successful, we're going to do it again, right? Maybe, maybe not. Depends on the circumstances. My point is, of course, there's
1: a possibility that we would. I'm not suggesting that we wouldn't if we went over to Australia and made money hand over fist and had a great time. And subsequently, we had Australian promoters reaching out to us to try to replicate that success in other markets. Would we have listened to those offers? Absolutely. But was there a plan in place whereby Hulk or myself uh, and, and by the way, I was the one negotiating the deal with the Condons, not Hulk Hogan. Uh, he, I don't think he ever had a conversation with him until he landed uh, in Australia, and he met him for the very first time. Um, I was the principal involved in those negotiations, and there was no discussion with the Condon Group or anybody else of any international – tours so to suggest in that quote that what we were telling you know our roster that didn't exist um outside of a handful of friends that we talked to on a regular basis uh that there was some kind of long-term international touring model that we were developing or anticipated is just not
0: true let's keep it rolling here because something else that i do want to mention uh That gives a little context to why maybe Meltzer was a little snarky about the 2003 thing. He says in 2003, Jeff Jarrett was forced to fire Vince Russo as Booker as Hogan wouldn't come in if Russo was still in the company. This time, Hogan said he thought they could work together. However, if Hogan is really going to be in as opposed to doing a few spots and bailing and Hogan and Bischoff are going to have to have an active role in the company direction. Uh, Russo would probably do the work of writing the show, but he wouldn't have the power over the direction that he has now. So let's talk about the Russo piece here. How quickly does that come up in the conversations? As far as you know, here in 2009, that, Hey, uh, we want to bring you in, but, but Russo's still here and we got to figure out how to make that work.
1: That was a, that was a real big issue. Um, at that, you know, keep in mind our uh, Hawks and mines last go-round with Vince Rousseau did not end well. Neither one of us trusted Vince Rousseau as a business person. Um, we, we felt like he was a dishonest human being at his core. And creatively, neither one of us thought that he had anything under the hood. And that was a big issue. And it was subsequently, because it was a big issue for Hulk, he wasn't going to come to TNA as long as Vince Rousseau was – the head of creative that's really how I ended up getting shoehorned into this deal. And I often joke about that. You know, I, 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 I say I'm, I got Jimmy hearted into the deal because I think anybody that's been watching Hulk over the last 20 or 30 years knows that wherever Hulk goes, so does Jimmy Hart. And there's a reason for that, by the way, uh, and and a legitimate one, but in this case, it you know, Hulk didn't shoehorn me or Jimmy Hart me into that deal at TNA because he just wanted me to, you know, travel with him and hang out with him and, and help him through airports and things like that, which is kind of Jimmy's role. Uh, he knew that if he was going to go to TNA, he had to have somebody watching his back creatively. And that's when those discussions about me coming in as it related to Vince Rousseau started to happen. We made it clear to to Dixie Carter that this this deal wasn't going to get made for any amount of money as long as Vince Russo had creative control over anything that Hulk Hogan touched. And it was subsequently negotiated. That's where my deal came in. It was subsequently subsequently negotiated that I would come in as a part of Hulk Hogan's deal, not as a part of his deal. I had my own deal, but I would come in with Hulk Hogan. And my role it wasn't. It's, I didn't want to be on camera. I didn't really. I was kind of. I I would have preferred, in a way, that my name not even be associated with TNA. And I know that sounds horrible. And I'm not being snarky, uh, as you suggested. Dave Meltzer was earlier. I I just. I. I don't know how to say this without sounding like a dick, but, you know, I. I had kind of been to the mountaintop in WCW with what we accomplished with Nitro and the Monday Night Wars. I subsequently had the opportunity to kind of close my sports entertainment chapter, you know, with WWE in a very high profile, you know, in my opinion, successful role. And I was really, really content with that. Now, if other opportunities came my way, for example, like the Australian tour, that was a transactional opportunity for me. It was a way to make money. Um, of course, I'm going. I'm going to entertain that. That was my business. I was a self-employed, you know, person in the entertainment industry. And whether it was a tour or a reality show or any other form of entertainment, I would always look at those deals. But my goal. Please believe me, if you don't if you've never believed anything else I've ever said, believe me, my goal was not to end up on camera or even getting involved in TNA creative. It was, you know, when this deal started becoming real and I realized that it could actually happen, that was when I started checking out TNA on television. And it was like, oh, I don't want to be a part of that. At least not visibly. I don't mind being, you know, behind the scenes and and helping, you know, make sure that Terry's creative is, or Hulk's creative isn't, you know, the victim of, of Vince Russo whack attack. But um, I, it's not something I aspired to be involved with. I can assure you, I I, I did it really. And I'm not going to say I didn't. I did it for the money. There, I was. They paid me a lot of money. It's not that that was not a consideration, but the largest consideration was to help out Hulk.
0: Um. Just I, I don't this may be not sent I'm not saying this right but just sort of be Hulk's protector safeguard him from bad creative what do you mean protect Hulk or help Hulk no
1: I mean my deal the understanding initially now my relationship with TNA subsequently changed over time but originally my agreement my contract with Hulk um, or as a part of Hulk's overall deal was to come in and oversee all of the creative that had anything to do with Hulk Hogan, whether it was marketing, licensing, merchandising, storylines, who he worked with, who he didn't work with, how his name was used on TV. Again, think back to you know, our last experience with Vince Russo when he went into business for himself and went out and cut a promo that he was not supposed to, to cut that ended up in a massive lawsuit in which – you know, Hulk Hogan ended up receiving a massive seven-figure se- settlement because Vince Russo went into business for himself and used Hulk Hogan's name, aka a trademark, in ways that were not approved. So we had to make sure that, that something like that wouldn't happen again. So my role was to come in. When I say protect Hulk, I mean protect the character from from a creative perspective, whether it was, like I said, licensing, merchandising, T-shirts, toys, whatever kind of deals that TNA was going to enter into utilizing a Hulk Hogan trademark, I had to approve. Or Hulk and I had to approve, or I had to approve on Hulk's behalf is the way it actually worked out at that time. Because Hulk was down. He he, he was kind of not functional at the time we were negotiating this deal. He was in so much pain. Um, so that that was the, the, the premise upon which my... Contractual obligation or contractual arrangement was built. I came in to oversee. I was not full time. I would come in one day a week, hear what the creative team had to say, how they wanted to use Hulk, and I'd either approve it or not approve it, or work with them. Which is what I really did: is work with them to make it work, so that I knew it would be uh, something that Hulk wouldn't have an issue with. But the the to kind of back up just a little bit because you know I'm probably jumping ahead farther than I should. In the initial conversations, when this thing really started to become real and the Vince Russo challenge became something we had to figure out, um, uh, Dixie asked me if I would have a conversation with Russo, you know, and I, I knew who he was. I knew what he was. I I knew what his strengths were or weren't in this case. And I knew what his weaknesses were, um, what I told Dixie is the same thing I would say to anybody today. I don't have to like somebody to work with them. I really don't not so a prerequisite. I don't have to want to hang out with you or invite you over to my house for beers and watch a football game or, you know, go to your house for holidays or any of that kind of stuff. I don't need to do that, but I do have to trust the people I work with. If I feel like I can't trust someone, whether I like them or not, um, I can't do business with them. And I didn't trust Vince Russo. Now I did meet with Vince, you know, before we signed anything, I wanted to take his temperature and see where his head was at because Dixie assured me that he was a completely different person and had found religion and he wasn't the same guy he used to be and just really wanted to make everything work and all the gaga that we've heard about Vince Russo probably up until this day. Um, And I thought, okay, great, I'll, I'll meet with him. I don't care. I don't I, I don't dislike him enough to want to rip his throat out just because I'm you know within three feet of him, so sure, I'll meet with him. And I met with him and I listened to it. And you know, as always, Vince was a very charming, apparently sincere guy, but none of that mattered to me because I knew ultimately whether I believed him or didn't believe him, liked him or disliked him, trusted him or not trusted him. It didn't really matter because I had creative control over the Hulk Hogan character in TNA. When I say I, I mean we, Hulk and I. Me is the face of it, but ultimately it was Hulk. But I was working on his behalf. So I wasn't worried about whether I could trust Fitz Russo or not. It didn't matter. Um, I didn't have to trust him because it was ultimately my decision uh, in terms of how we used
0: Hulk. I don't mean for this to sound the way it does. I know you're going to get mad when I say it, so uh, hear me out. How weird is it that after you were the guy, who got Hulk Hogan to make the jump to WCW, you become like another part of the Hogan entourage here for TNA, like as you said, on this Australian tour are the usual cast of characters, whenever you bring in Hulk Hogan and you write it off a list of names, this is the first time you've ever been like part of the crew. Obviously, yeah, no,
1: that doesn't make me mad. There's nothing wrong. I'm not, I'm not angry about that at all. I just know
0: you don't like a lot of those guys. (laughs) and I know that I'm not comparing you to Brian knobs or or, or Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. I'm just saying this is the first time a deal has been structured where you're like, okay, brother, I'll come in. But if I do, I got to have this guy. And it's such a weird dynamic because it's not like give him a job on TV and let him help get some guys over, you know, it's, it's instead. He's coming along, but as an executive behind the scenes, it's just a weird dynamic in the first time something like this that I know of has happened in wrestling.
1: Yeah, I know it was unusual. Um, and again, I'm not sure why you think I would take offense to that because it's true. I've often joked about, you know, being Jimmy hearted into the deal. I know that's a perception. (laughs) (laughs) I you know, it is what it is. You know, my ego isn't so big that I can't laugh at myself from time to time. Believe me, or or the situations that I found myself in over the last 30 years. No, so just
0: Jimmy Harted into the deal is a, is going to be a t-shirt. I'm going to figure out a way <laughs> to Jimmy Harted into a deal. That's hilarious.
1: Well, you know, but let me be clear about that because that sounds like a shot at Jimmy and I don't want it to be because Jimmy is, there's a reason why Jimmy Hart has always been wherever he, Hulk, wherever Hulk Hogan is. Now, Jimmy may not bring the same kind of business acumen to the table that I do because Jimmy doesn't have the same types of experiences that I do. Um, Jimmy Hart's never negotiated deals like I have negotiated deals, good and bad. I've learned as much from some of my misfires when it comes to negotiations as I have from my successes. But in either case, I've got a lot of experience in that, that area. I have had a lot of experience in the creative side of things, especially with Hulk. I resurrected his career in WCW. If you want to go back and you know, kind of look at why I got Jimmy Harted into the deal and, and why my particular uh, experience or, or acumen was the reason why I got Jimmy Harted into the deal. When I say Jimmy Harted, I mean brought in with Hulk for a specific reason, Uh, You know, Jimmy, Jimmy's a loyal, honest, amazingly hardworking individual. And on the ground, I'm talking about just getting things done, whether it's, From a production perspective, or if you need an ear to bounce things off of creatively, or you just need to talk through situations that come up in this bizarro industry we call sports entertainment, Jimmy Hart's got a lot of experience, and Hulk knew that he could rely on Jimmy for honest answers. Jimmy Hart didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He didn't party. He just worked and he was loyal. That's why Jimmy Hart was always around Hulk Hogan. And I think that's as much of a compliment as I can pay anybody in the wrestling industry or sports entertainment industry. If you're hardworking, you're loyal, you're honest, and you can get shit done, I want you on my team too. So when I say Jimmy hearted, I mean Jimmy has certain expertise and and value to Hulk Hogan, which is why he was always there. Yes, he ended up on TV a lot, but that's not why he was there. He wasn't there because of what he brought to to the Jimmy I'm speaking about. Jimmy wasn't there with Hulk Hogan, whether it's in WWE or WCW or TNA or anywhere else because of the value that he brought on camera, despite the fact that he ended up there. He was brought on board for specific reason, and so was I, in a similar way as Jimmy Hart would be. But what I brought to the table was something that Hulk had a lot of confidence in, in terms of being able to negotiate a good deal, which I did. I negotiated a hell of a deal for Hulk Hogan, with TNA, really with Spike TV. Um, it was a, it was a, it was a very, very good deal for Hulk, and it worked out extremely well for him and for Spike. But. More, more than that, because Hulk had other attorneys that, or or had attorneys that he could have certainly relied upon for that. But what Hulk was really concerned with was, okay, great. I'll negotiate a hell of a deal. It'll be good for me. And then what? And I was there to handle the, then what?
0: Yeah. Let me mention, uh, since we're in putting over Jimmy Hart mode, uh, I've had Jimmy Hart to uh, multiple StarCasts and Jimmy Hart is always one of the top meet and greet sellers Uh, and could not be easier and nicer to deal with so if you're listening to this and thinking about promoting wrestling or you are a promoter and you're looking to sell some meet and greets and get some fans uh jimmy hart is over like rover i've said this a lot lately but there's two guys that i know are going to be on time professional super gracious with fans and fans are going to line up to meet them and it's ted dibiase and jimmy hart and they were doing something right in the 80s in the WWF, baby because people still remember them and you could not ask for a nicer gentleman to work with than Jimmy Hart. So I too am not shitting on Jimmy. I just thought it was interesting that now you're part of the, uh, part of the Hulk Hogan whack pack for lack of a better word. Uh, let's and, talk- proud,
1: and, and, and proud to be there by the way, it, it, to this day. So there you uh, go.
0: Yeah. So let's talk about, you know, how this deal comes together. Are you, you, you have a, an initial conversation with Jeff Jarrett. I mean, I'm sure Hulk calls and tells you, Hey brother, talk to double J. Yeah. 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 And then you talk to Jeff, or when do you finally have a conversation with Dixie Carter?
1: Actually, it was uh, Jeff and Dixie. Dixie was very much involved in the initial discussions that I had. Let's see, I think the very first face-to-face Hulk and I flew to Nashville, and we met Dixie and Jeff at uh, Dixie's home in, in Nashville. That was the very first, at least for me. Now, I think Hulk may have met Dixie prior to that. I'm not sure. Uh, but for me, the very first formal meeting and discussion took place at Dixie's house between Hulk, myself, uh, Jeff Jarrett, and
0: Dixie. So let's talk about, you know, once the deal is put together, it's interesting that you have a press conference and you don't just have it anywhere. You have it done in Madison Square Garden. An interesting strategy. Talk me through that.
1: That was Viacom. Uh, that was their their choice, uh, their decision, and they were able to put that deal together. I believe with uh, Madison Square Garden. I know there was some backstory to it. There was a point in time I think where management may have been changing over at Madison Square Garden, and the relationship with MSG and or Madison Square Garden and WWE at that moment in time may have been fractured to a degree. Uh, and I think Viacom knew that they wanted they wanted to make a they wanted to make a big splash. I mean, if you're going to make an announcement, um, there's probably no place better to make it than Madison Square Garden in New York City, and that was really a Viacom-driven choice and decision.
0: When you, you know, know that you're going to be dealing with Viacom and you're going to be dealing with Spike TV, and you know, it's more than just you know dealing with the Carters and the Jarretts, How quickly does it come up? and this is going to be a show for another time when you actually do the debut, but how quickly does it come up that, man, if we really want to make a run at this, we've got to recreate the Monday night war. We need to move from our Thursday slot to Monday.
1: That was a conversation that took place fairly early on. And uh, another thing that I really want to spend some time, a little bit of time, at least addressing since you asked it. The idea of moving to Monday night wasn't so much because we thought we could be competitive – to the WWE. I hope someone from AD is or AEW is listening to this. It wasn't because we thought we were going to be able to be competitive, but we knew when we went, if we went head to head with Monday Night Raw, much like making a big announcement at Madison Square Garden, we knew that going head to head, whether it was for a short period, it was an experiment. We knew that it was an experiment. It was never intended to be or committed to be any kind of a long-term decision, but we knew we would create a buzz. We would get people talking about TNA that up until that point had never talked about TNA, and that was the goal. You know, TNA was, was, you know, it had a small audience. There was a small percentage of the overall sports entertainment audience that knew who or what TNA was, but for the most part, it was off mainstream radar. And we knew that by creating the controversy and and going head to head that we would, you know, we'd get a lot more attention than we otherwise would. And we'd be able to leverage and maximize the Hulk Hogan brand in a more efficient way than just, you know, being that quiet little company over there on Thursday nights that nobody had ever heard of before.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, wrestling is, uh, I guess history is repeating itself because Ladies and gentlemen, SmackDown is coming to Fox and it all kicks off Friday, October 4th with the 20th anniversary celebration 7:30 Eastern is when you need to tune in the 20th anniversary show has a huge lineup of WWE superstars and legends. And of course, right at the top of the list, Mr. Hulk Hogan himself, Roman reigns will be there. Goldberg will be there. Becky Lynch sting the undertaker, Ric Flair and stone cold Steve Austin. The 20th anniversary show also marks Brock Lesnar's return to SmackDown as he's going to challenge Kofi Kingston for the WWE championship. And in its 20-year history, SmackDown Live has helped launch the careers of pop culture icons like Dwayne the Rock Johnson and John Cena and Triple H and the Bella Twins and more. And now we're entering the Fox era of SmackDown. Friday Night SmackDown on Fox is going to bring you edge-of-your-seat action, unpredictable drama, and world-class athleticism all to primetime television every Friday night for 52 weeks a year. No off season here for SmackDown. The WWE is joining Fox to create the greatest lineup in television with Thursday night football, Friday night, SmackDown big noon Saturday. And of course Fox NFL Sunday, October 4th will be the greatest night of superstars the WWE has ever seen. Don't miss the premiere of Friday night SmackDown on October 4th at 7:30 Eastern only on Fox. How excited are you for this? I'm really excited. I
1: mean, I'm excited for WWE, you know, and having, you know, I've been here now for just about two months or a little over two months. And there were some people here, there are some people in WWE that I knew back when I was here as a talent, you know, in, in the early 2000s, but 2000s. And there's a lot more people that I've come to know and really respect and like, and I'm so happy for all of them because they're working their guts out and they have for decades, but to see WWE, you know, take this giant leap and it's such a, and I, I don't think anybody really realizes how significant of of a leap this is into the future for the entire industry obviously for WWE but this is elevating the entire industry to a, a level that i don't think anybody ever dreamt could really happen and it's going to have such benefits to to the team at WWE and, and like i said to everybody and I'm the talent it's just it's such a great thing, and I'm I'm really grateful just to be a part of it. I mean, it's a big, big team effort. It's obviously a team effort that's been going on for a long time. Um, but just to have the privilege to be here and be a small part of it is just, as a fan, as someone who spent the last 30 plus years of my life in the industry, as someone who you know has a WWE employee badge, uh, for all. All of the reasons above, um, I'm just could not be prouder and more grateful, uh, to be a part of that process on Friday night in Los Angeles.
0: It's going to be a big deal, man. I got to tell you, I didn't realize that all that talent was going to be there either. I mean, uh, I didn't know Sting was going to be there and flair is going to be there. It is a who's who don't you dare miss it. It's this Friday night. Wrestling history is going to be made. I'm sure it's going to be the talk of the internet Friday night and of course all weekend And what a monumental moment for wrestling, man, for Fox, not just to be, or for WWE, not just to be on cable, but to be on broadcast television. It's never happened before. Not at this level. And, uh, I'm pretty excited about it. And, uh, I think everybody should check it out. I think the world will, I think it's going to do great in the ratings and I'm excited for what's next for you guys. So kudos to you and, uh, how, how cool and ironic is it that when we first started this show, little did we know WWE was going to wind up on Fox and that you would be a big part of it. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's just every time you and I do a podcast, it's like, God, isn't it ironic or, or, you know, bizarre how life is in the sports entertainment business? And, you know, here we are again. You know, we're talking about a period of time back in 2009 when Hulk and I were coming to TNA and now... I- We're talking about, you know, Hulk's going to be at SmackDown on Fox on Friday. And so am I, you know, it's just, you know, I won't be on camera, but just to be a part of that show, it's just, this is a fascinating world we live in. And I'm, I'm so grateful to be a part of it.
0: Well, let's talk about, you know, this TNA man, it's weird just shuffling around. What a, what a transition. (laughs) It's just, here we go. TNA sources have claimed a meeting would be held this week with Spike TV regarding a move to impact on Monday night from eight to 10. However, Brian Diamond of Spike said there would be no time slot change and their goal is to use Hogan to strengthen Thursday as their night. And Diamond said the deal came together so quickly, they hadn't yet formulated a game plan as far as any additional programming. And the press release notes that Bischoff-Hervey Enterprises Television has inked the deal with TNA to develop new television projects with TNA. And Diamond noted working at MTV in 84 and 85 and how Hogan and Piper and Cindy Lauper and uh, Lou Albano had such a huge impact on the station, and that Hogan has had a successful show on VH1, also part of the Viacom family. So it's an interesting time in the wrestling business, to say the least. But what sort of jumps out at me is how he says the deal came together so quickly, they hadn't yet formulated a game plan. And when you're making such a significant investment in a talent like Hulk Hogan, and I don't know the number, but I uh, don't think I'm going out on a limb to say it was significant. It's fascinating that we want him so bad. We don't even know how we're going to get a return. We just know we will. And I sort of feel like that's history repeating itself because you've talked about getting Hulk Hogan over to WCW had more value than just the rating had more value than just the creative in ring had more value than just the buy rates and just the gate. There's also this sponsorship piece where you're going out and trying to get the associations with bigger brands and get on some of, you know, the cameos on bigger TV shows and uh, get out there on wall street or Madison Avenue rather with the ad agencies and an association with a name that is really a household name, a pop culture name, like Hulk Hogan is such a big deal that once again, a decade later, more than that, in fact, TNA is willing to sort of roll the dice in the same way.
1: Again, let's be really clear. TNA had no exposure, financial exposure. Yeah, sure, they had Spike. nothing to lose. Right. S- Spike Viacom was paying Hulk Hogan's freight. They were the ones at risk, not Dixie, not TNA. And again, you don't have to believe me. If there's people out there, no, I'm not saying you, Conrad, but if there are listeners out there, who are skeptical, who are cynical, who believe what they've read in dirt sheets, no matter who writes them, that, you know, Hulk Hogan, you know, Dixie Carter paid Hulk Hogan all this money. You're absolutely incorrect in your thinking. And if you don't believe me, just Google. Look for it. You know, there is, and I wish I had it in front of me. I don't. But there was an, and I think it came about towards the end of TNA's, uh, or towards the end of the, debacle with Vince Russo and TNA and, you know, emails that went to the wrong people and Dixie, you know, having Vince Russo on a payroll, but telling Spike TV that she didn't and all that kind of nonsense. When that, when that hit the fan and became public, there was uh, a gentleman from the Viacom public relations department that was quoted in a national publication that made it clear that TNA wasn't paying for Hulk Hogan, Viacom was. And Viacom was paying for Eric Bischoff, and Viacom was paying for a lot of other people, not TNA. So I think the, you know, for, and I, I'm not suggesting you're trying to mislead anybody, but the, the statement that, wow, TNA is ready to roll the dice on Hulk Hogan, <laughs> I'd roll those dice too if I didn't have to put the money on the table. Well, It's the, easy to gamble all day long if it's not your money you're gambling
0: with. Clearly I meant Viacom, Spike, The television company because that's what you know let's make no mistake wcw is not a wrestling company wcw is a part of a television organization and here's another television organization that understands the value of hulk hogan's name beyond just how many tickets are we selling i just think it's fascinating that everyone in tv whether it's 1994 or 2009 recognizes the value of having the name hulk hogan on your roster and and certainly it's going to have incredible value to tna and i know that A lot of our, uh, more hardcore wrestling fans, uh, who were entrenched in independent wrestling and the dirt sheets and five-star matches and whatever would take issue with this, but there's really no comparing from a pop culture standpoint and a name recognition standpoint in the mainstream, you know, a great wrestling talent, like AJ styles to the name value of Hulk Hogan. Now, of course, some of that's changed with AJ's exposure in the WWE, but back in 2009, while AJ may have been the best wrestler on the roster. Not a lot of people down at the Walmart probably knew who that was, but they all know who Hulk Hogan is. It's just, uh, it's an interesting television dynamic and another interesting relationship, as we were talking earlier about sort of the members of the Hulk Hogan entourage, Bubba the love sponge is a, at this point, still very tight with Hulk and he would send out a tweet saying that he's seen Hulk Hogan's contract that Hulk had signed it. And it's going to give Hogan complete control over the company. And the only person above him is Bob Carter of Panda energy, which I find fascinating. Um, yeah, Bubba and, love, and, and also, and, and also not true, but that's sure. But Go ahead. Yeah. I don't know. It's just bubble the love sponge, man. Uh, the TNA press release on Tuesday would say Hulkamania is back. The biggest name of professional wrestling history. Hulk Hogan is joining total nonstop action wrestling, the fastest rising wrestling organization in the world and home of cable television's highest rated shows for young men, TNA Impact. The announcement was made today by TNA Wrestling in conjunction with Spike TV at a press conference held in New York City, and he would be quoted in this press release as saying, I'm thrilled to be jumping back into the world of professional wrestling. My fans have been asking me to return to the business for many years on a full-time basis, but the timing or the opportunity has never been right until right now. TNA wrestling is a great company with an already excellent fan base business and broadcast partner. I firmly believe now is the time for some change at TNA as they are positioned to jump to the next level in their development. And I'm here to work with Dixie to help make that a reality. So it's an interesting quote because he says now is the time for some change at TNA and you know, a lot of the fan base who are sort of hardcore TNA fans from the beginning, seven years in at this point, They love their TNA exactly the way it is, even though backstage, as we heard a month prior in the newsletters, it's absolute chaos. When did you first attend a TNA taping? When did you first have uh, a visit to Nashville and meet the staff? And when did you get a peek behind the curtain of TNA for the first time?
1: I think once the uh, once the deal was consummated, signed and uh, executed by all parties, I flew up to Nashville and met everybody. You know, like I said, I had met Dixie, I had met Dean Broadhead, who was kind of over, their chief operating officer, I believe, was his title, or chief financial officer. I can't remember which. C- but
0: CFO I, is the title, I believe. CFO. Yeah,
1: CFO. So I had met Dean, and obviously Dixie, Jeff. Uh, but once the deal was executed, I think I had my meeting, had a meeting with Vince Russo somewhere offsite, you know, just to get over that initial, uh, challenge of being in the same room with him. Uh, then my next meeting was at the, the TNA headquarters. And then subsequently to that, you know, I started coming in once a week and sitting down and hearing their creative as it related to Hulk. I wasn't interested in anything else that they were doing, just anything that touched Hulk Hogan storyline-wise, uh, I probably had my first meeting and then possibly the week later flew into Nashville and sat down to to work with creative and hear what they had to say and what they wanted to do.
0: Who all was a part of that process when you're talking about creative at the time?
1: Um, well, Matt Conway is the, the young man that I remember the most because he's a very, very talented guy. And, and if there was a way I could talk him into... Reaching out to WWE and jumping on board here, I would. But he, he, hardworking, smart, very, very smart, very talented guy, great personality, uh, worked like a dog, um, and it was a great. He's a very rational, creative person. You know, sometimes you meet creative people that have all kinds of really crazy, out of the box—a term that's overused so much—but you know, just wacky, out of the box, super creative. ideas, but there is no real logic to it, you know, and, and Matt had the ability to think big and be creative, but also be creative and have it rooted in logic and, and kind of common sense, really talented guy. I think Ed Farrar might've been there for a while while I was there. There were, you know, Terry Taylor was there. I don't think Terry was really part of creative. He wasn't, he was talent relations, if you can believe that. But, um, it was a pretty small crew creatively. Uh, Jeff was not in those initial creative meetings. I think Jeff and Russo had a weird re- dynamic in their relationship. So Jeff wasn't a part of it, but it was a pretty small group of people.
0: Bruce Pritchard's not yet there, correct?
1: No, no. Bruce came in quite a bit after. I was the one that suggested to, to bring Bruce in. I know Russo likes to take credit for it, but, um, I was the one that when, You know, TNA realized that they really needed somebody real in talent relations. I was the one that reached out to Bruce and said, hey, buddy, what do you think? But no, Bruce had not. I think I was there for maybe six months or a year before Bruce came in.
0: One of the other things that sort of stuck out to me in the uh, reporting at the time is Hogan had been negotiating with the company about two months and his signing was kept top secret with less than half a dozen of the office staff aware of it. It's not believed that any of the wrestlers knew he was coming in and the reaction among them was that this could conceivably be a positive, both because his name was sure to bring them more publicity than they'd ever seen before, but also it might signal the end of the involvement of Russo, which most of the roster at this point has lost faith in. Did you ever have a conversation with any talent or anybody in the office or anything like that? Who made you feel like, boy, I don't know that they're on board with with Hulk and I being here, or or was it all smiles and high fives and everybody's happy to see you? Uh,
1: I would say overall it was all very positive. Again, you know, talent, you have to understand the dynamic of it. You know, the the talent in TNA were grateful to have a job. They may have been miserable. They may have not have liked Russo's creative. There may have been other issues that I wasn't aware of when I got there uh, that led to the general, you know, dissatisfaction with the way things are going. But when someone like Hulk comes in or into a lesser extent, someone like me came in, um, no, one's going to express that to you. They're not going to walk up to you and go, Hey, Eric, not so great to see you. What the fuck are you doing here? Yeah, this place would be better if you and Terry would just leave. (laughs) They're not going to do that. You know, people are professional. They're generally good people for the most part. All of them are or were at the time. And everybody that I, at least to my face outwardly, was very, uh, I don't want to say enthusiastic, but they were very supportive and and looked at it as a positive. I never got the sense from anybody that uh, there was any fear or hesitation in that we're there maybe terry taylor a little bit you know i think terry understood that i kind of knew who he was and you know i I knew what was under the hood with terry but you know it wasn't my concern at the same time when i came in i want to make this really clear when i came to tna i didn't care how they ran their business i didn't care who did what the only thing i cared about was the creative as it related to hulk hogan so when i came in i was not a threat to anybody really Um, I didn't want to be a threat to anybody. So it was not my role. I didn't want to, I didn't want any authority. I didn't want any control over anything other than what I was contracted to have control over.
0: Well, you kind of wonder what the rest of the wrestling world is thinking about this. And Meltzer would sort of run down some of the other names that were rumored at the time, because you got to appreciate at this point or prior to this, for whatever reason, impact was positioned as the little engine that could, or. Maybe the little engine that couldn't, but everything changes and everything that, you know, once seemed unreasonable or out of the realm of possibility is possible now because you've got a name like Hulk Hogan associated. So Meltzer runs down through some of these names, Steve Austin, rumors were flying. He was part of the deal, which I'm totally skeptical of because he's never been on good terms with either Hogan or Bischoff. And according to those who have discussed it with him, Hogan or Austin's goal is to be more like Dwayne Johnson. And that is to stay as far away from wrestling as possible because he because he feels it's better for his aspiring movie career to do so, I'm pretty sure you can kill this quickly, Eric. Any discussion ever about Steve Austin when he first came in?
1: Not that I ever heard. You know, now maybe you know, over a bottle of wine and a, a bag of weed, somebody else might have thrown it out there. Sure, but n- not in front of me. I was never part of that. Now, and you- I, I want to take something back. by By this time in t- 2009, Steve and I were okay. You know what I mean we weren't buddies but we we weren't well we were I mean to, to the I mean probably to the same extent we are now you know we we reach out and if I'm in LA and I've got some free time and Steve's around and he's got some free time we go out and have a beer together and hang out and shoot the shit so and the, it was pretty much the same thing back in 2009 and 2010 so there was no heat there but Steve to my knowledge Steve had no interest in getting back into wrestling he wasn't able to wrestle.
0: Let's talk a little bit about diamond Dallas page, because he's someone who's always been closely associated with you and Meltzer would write page 53, just this past week stating he would be coming back to wrestling. However, on wrestlingobserver.com Page did an interview where he said he was not doing the Australian tour for Hogan and Bischoff, nor going to TNA at this point, he said his plan was to do Indies with a date coming up against hockey Tonk man. He said he wants to have fun wrestling without the pressure of being on television. And his main goal at this point is to not get hurt and to have at least one match at the age of 60. I do find it fascinating that he wasn't on the Australian tour. Why weren't you able to sell that? That feels like a slam dunk for you.
1: I'll go back to what I said earlier. We we were, we were fine at the top. The draw was Hogan and Flair. And, you know, Page would have been, GDP would have been a fairly expensive uh, add to the roster. And there just wasn't enough money in the budget you know to to justify it because we didn't feel the promoters didn't feel I should say that we needed it
0: bill goldberg was pitched on or around october 16th by tna and not affiliated with Bischoff or hogan and goldberg has always maintained as long as russo is around he's not interested do you remember him being part of the initial discussions at any point uh, not
1: in not in the initial discussions now i will tell you that a year or so after i was in tna um, his name came up, and I actually reached out to Bill to see if there might be any interest in in coming on board in a li- very limited way. And he just wasn't interested, not you know, for any other reason. And it just wasn't, you know, he didn't really want to be involved in the wrestling business at that point in time. And uh, it was a very cordial conversation, very positive conversation, but it never got past that kind of superficial phase. You know, it was never there were never any attorneys talking to attorneys, so it never got serious.
0: Fascinating thing written in The Observer here. I can't wait to get your take on. Quote The idea of Kurt Angle versus Hulk Hogan becomes obvious. And the former member of WWE Creative noted a few years back, Hogan had vetoed doing anything with angle. It was noted at the Raw Homecoming special, which had the tremendous Kurt Angle Shawn Michaels thirty minute Iron Man match, where Hogan challenged Austin. Hogan was watching the match with Vince, and the match was very good. And after Angle threw a suplex Hogan did a huge sell of it and turned to Vince with a look on his face saying, no worko with Mr. Stiffo. Okay. Vince just nodded. And apparently it was hilarious because Vince would make fun of that story for weeks afterwards. I find little nuggets like this incredibly entertaining because it, and I know you're going to say, oh, who knows if that really happened. And maybe it didn't really happen, but doesn't that seem like something Hulk Hogan would say, like fucking want no part of that. Oh hell yeah. I would be su- <laughs> I would be surprised if he didn't say it. Fascinating stuff, man. Well, listen, it's it's been weird sort of wrangling this all together and piece together how it came to be that you signed your first deal with TNA. But let's talk about sort of what's going on in your mind at the time. Were you thinking, "Now I can't believe I'm getting back into wrestling again." Did you have to have like a sit down with Laurie and talk to her about I can't believe I'm, we're doing this again, but it'll be different than last time. Or what did that look like?
1: I had never sit down with myself, you know, because it, again, just to contextualize this, I had a really, really successful production company in Los Angeles. My, I, I had offices in LA. I had an apartment on the beach in Santa Monica. We were making money hand over fist. Our business was growing exponentially. You know, we probably had at any one time, we had 110, 115 employees, you know, working on our show. They were off. Most of them were freelancers. We had a small core of full-time employees, but, you know, we had freelancers working on, you know, three or four different shows at a time. we were out pitching television shows. I loved my life. Now that the TNA deal, the way it was originally constructed or, or, According to the agreement, was like one day a week out of my life in you know, showing up at TVs where Hulk Hogan was involved. So it didn't really take a lot of my time. Um, and then, fast forward a few months, I start having fun. That's when I had to sit down and start talking to myself. Because, you know, sitting in the creative process and listening, okay, how, I would sit down and say, okay, what do you, where are you guys going with Hulk? What are you thinking you want to do? What do you got? That would just open up the dialogue. And as we started riffing stories and angles and segments and, you know, this week leads to next week and next week that leads to the following week and, you know, all that start, started to get to be too much fun for me. I started wanting to get more involved and and I didn't even make the decision. Okay. I want to get more involved. I'm going to go tell Dixie Carter. I want to expand my role. That was not it at all. It's just that I found myself having more and more fun. And instead of going in for one day, I'd stick around for two or three. And that's when I had to go, Oh my God, I'm getting sucked into this again. Not by anybody else. I was a lot. I was, I was, I was doing it to myself. Um, I, I was immersing myself into a process that was beyond what I originally wanted to do or I was originally contracted to do. And it wasn't a bad thing. It was a good thing, but it was different than what I anticipated. And that's when I had to sit down and go, OK, what are you doing? <laughs> and why are you doing this? You know, you're not going to make any more money here. You know, and I, I rationalized it to myself, well, if the company's healthier, if I can contribute and if I can make everything else better, then it's going to be better for Hulk. It'll be better for me in the long run. It'll be better for everybody. So, you know, I just, my own unbridled enthusiasm, I guess, uh, for the process just got me more involved.
0: It's just fascinating to me that, you know, I know some, some folks get weird about talking about money, but at this point, based on your television career, You're making well in excess of a million dollars a year. And you're like, but I got this fucking thing in the back of my mind that makes me like that. And it's probably not going to pay as well, but I just can't help myself. I really like wrestling as a fucking disease. Is it not Eric? Well,
1: yeah, in a way, but here's, here's why I think someone like me and look, I work with and have worked with in the past, Guys who have written really successful movies and television series and all kinds of other legitimate outside of wrestling, um, you know, properties, television shows, like I said, movies, and they kind of would love to do what I was doing or what I'm doing now. And the reason for that is because if you're a very successful, if you're a successful writer on a, on a, on a television series, um, there's a good chance you're going to spend 80 or 90% of your time writing things that will never see the light of day. Just the nature of the beast. Whereas in, in our business, because number one, it's 52 weeks a year, right? There's hundreds of hours a year of content that needs to be produced and if you're lucky enough to find yourself in a room writing that content your ideas these the the thing that drives one to become a writer or any kind of a creative person you know to be able to have an idea and develop it on a piece of paper pitch it into a room full of people and then maybe a week later actually see it on television and say i did that or i was a part of the team that did that is a very very that's the drug. That's what's addicting. And sports entertainment in general has something to offer to creative people that n- almost no other form of entertainment does. And that's what gets a, that's what gets into your blood. When people say oh, oh wrestling's in my blood, you know, you can probably apply that to you know obviously you can apply that to guys that you know perform in the ring, but you can also apply it to writers and producers. Because there's very few things that give you such a fantastic opportunity to put your fingerprints on it, whether it's your idea, which very few ideas are anybody's, you know, singular idea. But whether it's your singular idea or you're fortunate enough to be part of a good team of people that put together a great idea or an idea, any idea that actually makes it to the screen, big or small, that's the drug. And, I'm, you know, I'm a junkie for that. I, I, I've always been a junkie for it. I am still am to this day. It's, it's, there's nothing else like it. And if I had the ability, if I had the talent, which I don't, but if I had the talent to be a successful lead writer on a, you know, network television series or to be a part of the team doing what I'm doing now, I would be a part of the team doing what I'm doing now because the the, the way it turns over, just the sheer volume of what's required and the opportunity to take an idea. You could be riding down a street on your bicycle or sitting on a park bench or on a treadmill or watching television at home or sitting in a movie theater and have an idea pop into your head. And two weeks later, you're watching it play out on national television. That's fucking awesome.
0: Fascinating time to uh, go back and visit. Uh, this, this era where you're jumping to TNA and Hulk Hogan's with you. I know looking back, people really like to focus on, you know, what didn't go well, but we should mention that this announcement does so well that it makes TNA one of the top trending things on Twitter for the day. It crashes the wrestling observer website. It's getting the company more publicity than they've ever seen before. And two days later, They do a 1.3 rating with 1.7 million viewers. And the prior week they did a 1.1. So just as a frame of reference, ratings are up. They're trending. They've got mainstream attention. Websites are crashing. It's a big boost. But what is even more interesting is after they make this announcement, you guys aren't with him right on TV right away. Meltzer would say the plan was to hold out and not debut him on TV until after the football season had ended. Uh, we should mention that you at the time, Thursday meant that you were going head to head with football and here in October, you are actually going head to head with world series as well. Chat me up. Why the delay and, and doing, not having him appear right away, doing something later, <laughs> had nothing to
1: do with not wanting to compete with football or major league baseball or anything like that. It had to do with just making sure physically he was feeling well enough to go down on TV. That's really all it was.
0: Well, I tell you, we'll be talking a lot more about SmackDown in the coming weeks, and it's just weird how, you know, what's old is new again. And Hulk Hogan is back in TNA in 2009 and man, he's on SmackDown this week. Don't miss it. SmackDown on Fox. It's this Friday night. And, uh, I had fun talking about your, your venture into joining TNA. Of course, there's a lot of meat left on the bone. We'll talk about, you know, the actual debut. Then we'll talk about, you know, when you guys go head to head on Monday and some of the behind the scenes finagling, and then of course the end, but there's a lot of high points that happened along the way. And this was one of them, even though, uh, you know, when people think about Hulk Hogan and Eric Bischoff and TNA, for whatever reason, it just gravitates to the negativity But you had to feel pretty encouraged when ratings were up and websites are crashing and it's trending on Twitter and there's a huge boost of mainstream publicity. You had to walk out of there, maybe if you were a little skeptical or hopeful before, with uh, your chest puffed out a bit. Like, hey, man, this might work. Yeah, it wasn't so much my chest
1: puffed out, but I was excited. I I was excited at the possibilities and the potential that appeared at least uh, initially to, to be there. You know, we kind of checked all the boxes we would have hoped to check, you know, coming in with the announcement and, and the reaction that it got from the audience. I think what, and we'll talk about this, you know, we're going to probably break this TNA saga down into a couple different chapters over the next few months or weeks or whatever you're going to, however you want to do it. But, you know, initially we were hoping at least that TNA would put, the kind of resource. I mean, we knew that you know Viacom was the one that was paying the freight, but had TNA as a company done the things necessary to take advantage of some of that momentum, um, it it may have carried itself forward. It became obvious to us in the weeks and especially the months that followed. The deeper we got into it, the more we realized that you know there were no real resources put behind any of this it was uh, by tna uh it was really i think wishful thinking on their part that all you had to do was throw these big names out there which is really ironic because they had tried that you know booker t was there kevin nash had been there you know kurt angle was there you know there were a lot of big names uh that had either there were either you know sting was there there were a lot of big names that were in tna when we got there um that weren't really moving the needle the way they they should have. And I think a lot of that is because TNA didn't know what to do with it. You know, you can't just trot somebody out on TV and expect your world to change overnight. You've got to do a lot of other things to take advantage of that momentum. And that's where, although the excitement was certainly there, we were enthusiastic. We didn't really understand, you know, how TNA was being run at the time. Um, and actually who was running it. But, um, yeah initially we were, we were thrilled we we delivered what we hoped we would deliver you know making the announcement and showing up on tv
0: well and we're making the announcement right now that we're going to be back with you next week we've got a huge slate of shows coming with you next monday and every monday and we can't wait to bring them to you like next week we've got hashtag ask eric anything uh on the heels of uh this big debut on fox and of course, we're not going to talk a lot about the current stuff, but there's lots of similarities with the stuff we've done in the past. And of course, everything that we downloaded on today's episode about TNA, that's what we're doing next week. So if you've got a question, just cruise over to our social media at 83 weeks and you'll see hashtag ask Eric anything on October 14th. I'm pretty excited about this one, man. Halloween havoc, 1996, uh, 1996 is my peak fandom. And this is where we see the Hulk Hogan, Macho man, Randy Savage main event and the debut of Roddy Piper right after the NWO is white hot. It's going to be one heck of a time. And then a week later, we'll keep the NWO theme going on October 21st. We'll talk about Scott Hall and WCW. He really changed the game with the creation of the NWO. We'll briefly touch on the diamond stud stuff beforehand, but then we'll talk about the split of the NWO, the ups, the downs, the out of the ring challenges. And then eventually when Scott Hall parts ways with WCW on October 28th, just in time for Halloween, we'll talk about Halloween Havoc 1997, which I think most people remember for that Eddie Guerrero, Rey Mysterio classic, unlike anything else you'd see that year on November 4th, we're going to switch it up, do something different. It's going to be when worlds collide, 1994, not exactly a show that Eric booked, but something that he was involved with and lined up for WCW at a time when A lot of companies weren't really doing these partnerships and sort of co-promotions. Eric was open to that. So we'll talk about when worlds collide and what talent he saw there and what the result of that was on November 11th, clash of the champions 29. This is uh, a show from 1994. That is an absolute stinker of a show. And I finally get to skewer Eric for the first (laughs) time in a long time. (laughs) And we'll talk about something that has been requested a lot, believe it or not, Eric. On November 18th, we're going to do the World War Three pay-per-view from 1995, the very first one, and there were lots of uh, challenges with that when you've got all these rings and all these guys, but we'll talk about the idea, the execution, the creative, just everything going on behind the scenes here in late 95, and we'll touch on late 97 on November 25th when we cover the 1997 World War Three. This is a different era. This is also one month prior to the biggest pay per view ever, StarCade 97, which is still probably our most downloaded and talked about episode ever. So that's what's on tap as we get you through both October and November. Of all those topics, Eric, does one stick out like, uh, I really don't want to talk about that one?
1: No, I, you know, look, sometimes some of these shows are more painful than others. And I know you particularly enjoy being able to drag me through the mud and, and make me cry and scream and (laughs) howl when you bring up some of this stuff but deep down inside i don't mind it I, i really don't i enjoy going back and looking at things that worked things that didn't work why they worked why they didn't work talking about the business of the wrestling business and adding a new dimension you know to what we do here so that our audience which i'm proud to say is the most intelligent Sports entertainment audience in all of the podcast universe. So happy to contribute whatever I can.
0: Well, circle your calendars, boys and girls, because, uh, we're going to have a memorial service for Eric on November 11th, because he's going <laughs> to have to defend this card stars and stripes, which is the Patriot and buff Bagwell taken on pretty wonderful with Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. Then Johnny B bad and the honky tonk man, then Harlem heat and the nasty boys then Vader and Dustin Rhodes, but then Jim Duggan and Steve Austin for the United States championship at 17 seconds with Steve Austin and Jim Duggan. And then your main event, Hulk Hogan, Sting, and Dave Sullivan. That's real. Taking on the three faces of fear, the butcher, Avalanche, and Kevin Sullivan and Mr. T's your special guest referee. You know, you talked earlier about. Hey, what about getting Steve Austin over to to, to TNA? And you said, boy, that's like an idea with a bottle of wine and a bag of weed. This whole card feels like a bottle of wine and a bag of weed.
1: I think there may be a bottle of wine and a bag of weed involved in this podcast when we do it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, we appreciate your support. Thanks for hanging with us this week. And uh, we'll see you next Monday and every Monday right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.